the book of Acts ends in surprising fashion. Um, the book of Acts ends with the gospel having started in Jerusalem and, and started with Jesus and transforming and, and morphing through Jesus unto his disciples as they travel throughout the world. And they are met with hardship and affliction and persecution and pain and suffering and death throughout the book of Acts. And yet this is how the book of Acts ends. The final verses say, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. I pushed a button. Uh, they will listen. Uh, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He's talking about Paul in Rome. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Okay, the entire book of Acts, they have not been able to preach without hindrance, right? It's like, that's what we've been seeing, is, is, is story after story after story after story is about the hindrances and the violent uprisings against the church and against the gospel. And yet, as they get closer to Rome, which we might think of as like the epicenter of anti-Christian persecution in the ancient world, that's where Paul is finally able to preach without hindrance. That's a, that's, a, that's a radical idea. It's something that's really surprising. Um, when we think of Rome, we think of, I mean, Rome was who executed Jesus. Rome is the, traditionally, who put to death the, most of the early disciples. Paul eventually is beheaded in Rome, uh, according to early tradition. And yet the book of Acts ends with, finally, able to preach the gospel of God and able to talk about the kingdom of God and to proclaim Jesus freely. And he's able to do it with boldness in Rome. And finally, He's able to do it peaceably. Finally, he's able to do it uh, without hindrance. Um, last week, we talked about some of the, uh, the trials that Paul stood uh, before, before uh, Felix and Festus and before Agrippa, before he was sent to Rome. And we talked about how at the end of those trials, Paul, uh, having given his defense, having heard everything that he had done, they couldn't actually find any any actual accusation against him that was worthy of imprisonment or certainly death. They hadn't really found any crimes that he had committed or, or things that he had done wrong. And so they were in a difficult spot because Paul did not want to stand trial before the Jews. And since he was a Roman citizen, he was able to appeal to, to Caesar. So he's going to go to Rome. But the Romans who had been questioning him are thinking, the only thing that he could be guilty of is some like theological squabble among the Jewish people that we don't really care about. So why are we going to send him to Caesar if we don't have any accusation against him? Uh, but Paul did appeal to Caesar, and so they do end up sending him to Caesar. And uh, again, there's not a, a real Roman charge against him. But the last two chapters of Acts, they cover that journey of Paul leaving Caesarea and leaving uh, that area and traveling through a lot of hardship uh, to get to Rome. As a matter of fact, nothing in Acts ever happens easily. Like, you can't just get on a simple boat and make your way to, to Italy. You have to have a thousand conflicts along the way. And sure enough, that's, that's what happens. Along the way, 
Uh, Paul ends up, he has to be transferred from several different boats. He ends up being on one, and it's like everything that it says about this sailing process, it happens with difficulty until finally they do have a shipwreck, and uh, Paul ends up uh, with a bunch of other prisoners uh, stranded on the island of Malta. While he's there on Malta, he's gathering some firewood, and and the people are kind of watching, and they see these convicts that have all uh, landed on their shores, and Paul gets bit by a snake. Uh, right on the hand, a venomous snake, and uh, they do have those on Malta, um, and, uh, and so Paul uh, shook the snake off, and all the people were thinking, okay, God is just. He's a criminal. He must be a murderer or something, because he thought he was going to get away, but God's not going to let that happen. The snake got him, but then as they're waiting for his hand to swell up, and they're waiting for Paul to like pass out and kill over and die, nothing happens, and they pretty quickly change their views about Paul to think, oh, He's not a criminal deserving of death. He's a god. And so now they want to worship Paul. And so Paul has to put a stop to that. But it's like after event after event, there's a new unforeseen circumstance that comes up until Paul is eventually able to get on another ship. They do eventually make it to Rome. And one of the things that Paul does uh, when he first gets to Rome is uh, they're treating him well. He's able to take in visitors. He's able to talk to people. Uh, he's not like in some dark, uh, dangerous prison cell under the ground or something. He's in his own rented quarters. Uh, there is a, a, a soldier who's staying with him uh, to keep, you know, make sure he doesn't get away or anything. But he's able to live comfortably. He's able to have visitors. And so he starts get, taking visitors from the local synagogue and the local uh, rulers of the Jewish community. And they actually don't know anything about Paul. They say, we haven't heard anything from the churches in Judea or Jerusalem about you. Um, and so we do know about the way that you seem to be a part of. And we've heard nothing but bad things about that. The way is one of the ways that, uh, that Christianity was described. And so Paul begins teaching them about the way. And some of them actually come to believe. Some of them, however, reject. And, Isaiah, and uh, Acts starts to end with this quotation from Isaiah about people who have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear. Basically, who reject the teaching of God, but it's not uh, that the teaching of God will be rejected by everyone. Acts ends by saying, but let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. Uh, so even though you might reject it, there are Gentiles who will listen. Paul is now in Rome, a very Gentile city, and he's going to continue teaching. And that's where you get that final verse saying that he's able to talk about the kingdom of God. And he's able to preach the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. I think that that closing section, that closing verse, it seems to me, after all of the intense action that you've seen throughout Acts, it ends a little bit... Um, anticlimactically like like it ends with him just comfortable in Rome teaching it, it doesn't end with like a great daring escape from death he's had quite a few of those throughout you would think like they're gonna build up to the biggest one and then finally he's going to escape that's the way a lot of stories are written but this isn't just a story that was written from someone's imagination this is actually an account of what happened with Paul and I think that that conclusion is very fitting because it ties into something that has been uh, suggested all throughout Luke and Acts. And I think it's one of the major ideas and one of the major purposes of the whole writing. And the idea is that Christ and the teachings of Jesus and following Jesus is not something that explicitly 
should be of a major concern to the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, they should be open to hearing and listening to the message of Jesus. They should not emphatically reject it as a message of an enemy. They should be willing to listen to it. Um, when he gets to Rome, he's able to preach peaceably the gospel of Christ in Rome. That, I think, is something that Luke wants to happen more and more and more. As you just go through Luke-Acts, what you, or, and remember, you should read Luke before you read Acts because they are two volumes of the same work. Um, one of the things that you'll see repeatedly as you go through there is how compatible even the sinful, secular, hedonistic Roman Empire is with Christianity. And that might be surprising to us, but when you read through it, you, you see this over and over again. The very opening of, of Luke, you have Mary and Joseph who are going to the, the city of their forefathers to Bethlehem for a census because Caesar Augustus decreed it. It begins with an act of obedience to the decrees of the Roman emperor. Uh, that's, that happens. You see that after the ministry of Jesus, after everything that he did, even after his trial, he ends up standing trial before Herod and standing trial before Pilate, both Roman-appointed leaders. And at the end, these are the words that are said, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Uh, he does end up being crucified, but it's not because anything that Rome found guilty about him. Uh, it was more to appease the crowds and to keep peace among the people. Like they compromised by sending an innocent man to die in order to keep peace among the people. And sometimes if you're a Roman elected official, you have to make those types of compromises apparently. But the Roman officials didn't actually find anything that Jesus had done wrong. When you get to the book of Acts, who is the first Gentile convert? He's a Roman centurion. It's like it's a demonstration of, yes, you can be uh, a, an important person in the Roman Empire and still be receptive to this message. Uh, Roman centurions actually protect Paul from an assassination plot in chapter 23, and we talked about that some last week. Uh, there was this plot to have Paul killed, and so what the Romans did was they set two centurions with 200 men, I believe it was 70 uh, horsemen, and then another 200 spearmen to get Paul out of Caesarea so that they could avoid this plot against him and get him to safety. All of a sudden, you have this picture of Rome protecting the church rather than harming the church. After Paul stands trial, or while Paul is standing trial, notice he says these words in Acts 25, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Paul is trying to make it clear that Christianity and his teaching is not about uh, disobeying laws or rejecting the, the laws of the land or being bad citizens or violent uprising or anything like that. He hasn't committed any of those. And after his examinations, Festus says, I find that he has committed nothing worthy of death. After standing on trial before Agrippa, Festus, and other of the Roman-appointed leaders, it says, this man has done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. So just like Jesus was tried and found innocent and yet still ended up being punished, Paul is tried and found innocent. One of, one of the, the other themes that you see throughout is the things that Jesus does in Luke 
are the very things that happen to the disciples in Acts, and that happens over and over again. Like, who's the great teacher in Luke? Well, it's Jesus. And the disciples are usually pretty clueless. But once you get to Acts, the disciples become these great teachers. Who's the great miracle worker in Luke? It's Jesus. Well, it's the disciples in Acts. Uh, even, like, remember someone touches the fringe of Jesus' garment and is healed in Luke? Well, in Acts, they're able to, to give little pieces of cloth that when people touch it, they're able to be healed. Uh, it's Jesus in Luke, while dying on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. In Acts, it's Stephen who says right before his death, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It's like all of these things that happened to Jesus now are happening to his disciples, and this is one of them. Uh, the the Roman-appointed uh, rulers who examined Jesus, they don't find anything wrong. The Roman-appointed rulers who examine Paul, they don't find anything wrong. Th that's noteworthy. I think that's part of Luke's overall purpose, is showing that Christianity should not be viewed as, with extreme skepticism or uh, hostility by the Roman Empire, but Christianity is actually something that that you can value, that you should perhaps be willing to listen to. Uh, There's something that can make a positive impact. In fact, Acts ends with Paul finally in Rome. Christianity is there, Paul is preaching it, and it's not causing problems. Paul isn't harming anyone. No one is, uh, is you know, going out and committing crimes or causing major riots. In fact, it's finally happening very, very peaceably. He's, able, he's able to preach, and Rome isn't stopping him, and it's not causing major problems for them. Maybe it ends this way so that this could be an example. And Paul is saying, let us preach the lordship of, or, or Luke is saying, let us preach the lordship of Jesus, and you don't hinder us, and we'll see what happens. I think there are a couple of, perhaps, I don't want to say conflicting, but ideas in Luke and throughout the New Testament that uh, are somewhat within tension with one, with one another, but are, I think, really important for us to understand when it comes to our relationship to politics, to the state, to the empire, to the government. Um, and I think they pop up a lot within Luke and Acts. And one of them is that Christianity is not a direct threat to the empire. Christianity is not a direct threat to the empire. When you look at the teachings of Christianity, Christians are not called to be disobedient people. Quite the, quite the opposite. We're told to be submissive people, even to the governing authorities, even sinful governing authorities. I mean, like in Romans 13, Christians are called to be submissive even to the Roman Empire because God can, can do good things even with a sinful government. Uh, and so Christianity is not called to be the people out there causing problems or, uh, you know, causing riots or theft or looting or, you know, whatever you might think of. If you think of like an uprising, that's not what Christianity is called to be. Christianity is not called uh, to be violent, but rather to reject violent uprisings. And that's really radical because most of the time, especially in the ancient Roman world, if you're going to say there's a new king, the only way you're going to be able to preach that message is with violence because Rome's going to come down thundering with violence upon you. And Rome did that with Christianity eventually, and they did that with Jesus, certainly. Jesus was crucified with a plaque above his head that said the king of the Jews. That's the accusation. He claims to be a king. And so they're going to take him and show you how unking-like he really is. You want a crown? 
Here's one of thorns. You want a purple robe? I'll put it on your bloodied, battered, and beaten body. You want to be a king? I'll put it right above your head as you die miserably on a cross. That's what happens when you claim to be a king and you stand up against the Roman Empire. What they did not know is that God's kingdom is unlike the kingdoms of this world, and they actually were seeing in that moment what the kingdom of God is all about. And Jesus even told his disciples, if you want to follow me into the kingdom of God, you carry your own crosses. The Roman Empire gained its success and authority and power through violence. Anyone who wanted to topple the Roman Empire would have to be more successful at violence. They would have to be better at it. Jesus taught a very different way. And so Christianity is is not about borrowing the world's failed tactics and trying to use them for ourselves to establish a new kingdom. Uh, Kingdoms have tried that, and it just doesn't it might work for a little while until someone else gets enough power to knock you off and it just doesn't, it's not, it doesn't have any staying power. Um, Christianity is not about violent uprising. And Christians are called to be honest people. We're called to pay taxes. We're called to honor the king, which is really, you know, like even, even in the way that you speak about your rulers, do it in an honorable way. Doesn't matter whether you agree with them or not. That's what Christians are called to. That's First Peter. That's that's sometimes can be tough. Sometimes it can be easy. I tend to notice that uh, depending on how the election goes, the church either does well with this or really pitifully with this. Uh, but this is something that's supposed to define the people of God. No matter who's in charge, even if it's Nero, he should be able to look at the church and say, no, those are model citizens. I might not agree with them. I not like, might not uh, uh, be a part of the movement. But, man, this kingdom would be better if there were more people like that. If there were more honest, hardworking people of integrity, if there were more obedient, kind, thoughtful, caring uh, citizens, if there were more people who did look out after their fellow man, the world would be a much better place. The government should like having Christians. And I think Luke wants that to be seen. However, while Christianity is not a direct threat to the empire, Christianity is a threat to the empire. Uh, That's also the case in the book of Acts. That happens quite a bit too. Um, As you read chapter after chapter, you begin to realize if Christianity and the empire are going to coexist, some changes need to be made, and there's going to be tension there from time to time. Christians do actually have a different king and a different kingdom that we give more allegiance to than any of the kingdoms of the earth. Our ultimate allegiance is not to any earthly kingdom uh, that's, you know, by the coincidence of geography we happen to be born under. We are people who have willingly decided to give our allegiance to a different king. And there may be times when the words of our king conflict with the words of a human king. And we need to give our allegiance to our king. That will happen. That does happen. It happens in Acts. It happens sometimes in the world today. Uh, That's not always a comfortable or easy thing, but ultimately, if you're saying there's a different king who deserves our true allegiance, it does rob some of the authority from this person who's claiming to be king. When you say, you are not the ultimate king, Jesus is, and I'm going to listen to him above anything else you say. Uh, If you say anything that is in conflict with the message of my king, you lose 
that's not a message that Rome wants spread, and it's really not a message that most empires of this world want spread. Um, it actually is a threat to their authority. And so you'll see that conflict arise from time to time. You'll see that Christians reject the sins upon which empires are often built. Um, Christians are, we're a nonviolent kingdom. That's kind of rare in the world of kingdoms. Uh, that's kind of rare in the world of, of empires. You can read through Acts and you'll see this pop up from time to time. You'll see that uh, Christians reject idols, worshiping things that are not God. Christians are not called to be greedy. So guess what happens when Paul preaches the gospel in Ephesus? People who have made their money on selling idols are realizing that fewer people are buying idols. And guess what? We have like this big, huge temple to Diana. What happens if people stop going to it? And they start realizing, wait, if people stop worshiping idols, then all of a sudden we're going to start losing money. We're going to start losing our influence over the people. If everyone gives up greed, if people give up violence, if people give up lust, if people give up extortion. I mean, you, you can see even with things like, uh, like slavery, like Christianity had a lot to do with the abolition of, of slavery. Uh, granted, there were other uh, practice, uh, those, uh, those practicing Christianity who, uh, who weren't so keen to give that up, but that costs the government money. That led to great conflict. There were there are things that Christianity teaches that if the government does, it will cost them in some ways. I think there's going to be an innate conflict from the idea that Christianity calls its citizens to be selfless, and governments, by definition, are kind of selfish. They're looking out for what's best for their economy. They're looking out for what's best for their own protection and strength and military. And so that is going to run into conflict from time to time, and, uh, and you see that happen. In fact, one of the ways, and this is fascinating, one of the ways that Christianity was able to have such a drastic impact on the Roman world, and I think probably would still work today, is not that they saw evil practices in Rome, and so they decided to fight Rome. Rather, they saw evil practices and they decided to do something about it. They, they tried to overcome evil with good. Uh, one example is, is infanticide. Uh, you would take a child, you would leave it exposed to the elements, especially if it was a girl or if it was a child with any deformity or a child you didn't want. And this was a common practice. They would take the newborn, they would set the baby out, maybe on a, a, a dump heap or something like that, and they would walk away. And what Christians were known to do were to go to those areas collect those children and raise them in their own homes. Uh, this happened uh, regularly. In fact, uh, there are people alive today because that happened to their great, 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 great grandfather. Uh, but there are, there are actions that Christians took not to destroy those who did those evil things, but to find ways to use their own power of love to help eradicate those evil things. One thing that's interesting is after Constantine, uh, who in the, in the fourth century, the first Roman emperor to claim Christianity for himself, after him there was another uh, emperor uh, in the middle of the fourth century. Uh, he's often called uh, Julian the Apostate. He was one of the last uh, pagan emperors of Rome uh, after Christianity uh, had been legalized, he then became uh, emperor, and he was not a big fan of that. He hated Christianity, but he noticed something. 
he noticed that Christianity, they cared for the poor. They made sure that widows were provided for and fed. They took in orphans. They were really, really good for the society. And that bothered him because he hated Christianity. And he realized something. Maybe, maybe if we want people to stop going to Christianity, we should start doing those types of things. And so in, a, in an effort to fight Christianity, he started putting in uh, uh, um, programs that would help feed the poor and that would help take care of people who are in need because he was thinking maybe we can compete with Christianity and people will not see the need for that anymore and they can go back to the traditional gods of Rome. But isn't that fascinating how by Christianity doing the right thing, rather than using violence, by doing the right thing, by still honoring the king, by still being obedient, but living out the message of Jesus, they actually elevated the morals of the people around them even the people who were their persecutors, because they were realizing, hey, we kind of look bad in comparison. If people are going to keep going over to, to the, that kingdom, and I want people in my kingdom, I'm going to start copying them. And, and that actually led to quite a bit of change. Uh, hospitals for citizens were something that started as in, in Christian, as Christian uh, ministries, as Christian acts. There were hospitals, but they were generally reserved for soldiers. And if you didn't have money, and if you were just a regular citizen, you didn't have hospital access in ancient Rome. Well, Christianity started saying, hey, I don't care who you are, you can come here. When there was a plague in a certain city, rather than fleeing from it, Christians would actually go and try to help. Those types of things set them in conflict with the empire of the day, but it made a huge impact in the world, and it was one of the ways that Christianity was able to change the world. Christianity is supposed to change the world. Things are not supposed to stay as they always have been. The way of world empires is not to remain as it always has been. It's supposed to change, and we're supposed to change it, but we have a way that we're called to do it. Christianity is a world-changing, non-violent, submissive, loving, Christ-centered revolution. It changes the world. It has changed the world. I think it'll continue to change the world. But it does so not by borrowing the world's tactics, but by adherence to the message of Jesus. You could change the world through the Sermon on the Mount, through loving your neighbor, and through submission to, uh, to the will of Jesus, I believe in far better ways than you can through shouting out in anger, putting mean things on Facebook, uh, getting violent, getting aggressive. Like, Jesus has a different way, and I think if we really, really trusted it, we could do far more than we could just by joining in the throngs of people who try to do it their own way. Um, the world needs to be changed. Christianity's here to do it, and you get to be a part of that movement. You have a new king. He's calling you to a new way of life, and so here's the challenge. As Paul did at the end of the book of Acts, preach the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And I guess you can't control that last part, the without hindrance, but I will say we tend to live in a society that lets us, uh, that lets us do it without hindrance. Uh, we'll see, we'll see how that goes, but Paul is able to do that, and that's how Acts ends, putting that idea in your heads. So let's take advantage of the opportunity. Talk more about King Jesus than other human rulers. If you're going to change the world, don't rely on the kingdoms of the earth to do it for you. You have another kingdom, and we actually have some power. 
And we actually have some, some ability to make real changes by following the teachings of Jesus. I think we could do it. I think we could make this world an even better place. And I think Acts is ending with that very call. So let's take it seriously. And if there's anyone here this morning who wants to uh, be part of the kingdom of God, who wants to join the nonviolent, Christ-focused, spirit-led revolution, you can right here today. You can have your sins washed away. You can name Jesus as the Lord and the King of your life. You can be baptized, naming him as Lord, changing your life into conformity with his will. We would love to help you do that. And if you'd like to talk to one of our elders in the back or study further, uh, we would love to be able to help you with that as well. If uh, you have the need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.